0: Well, today, as you can tell, because there's so many people wearing green, is ain't Saint is Saint Patrick's Day, right? Like, and if I am a as a non-Catholic are allowed to have a favorite saint, uh, Saint Patrick is by far my favorite. In fact, uh, Patrick was a young boy who grew up, and, and he was raised by his family. And, and as he got uh, a little older, maybe around eight or nine, some pirates kidnapped him while he was out playing. Now, that's not a threat that most of us worry about today, that pirates might come and, and steal us. But they did. They, they stole him, and, and they took him away into captivity. In fact, they took him into captivity in Ireland, where he, he worked as a slave for a shepherd farm. And, and why he was there, uh, he didn't know what to do. He did not know who to turn to. He spoke a different language. and, And he began to cry out for God to make himself known. This God that he was taught as a young boy but didn't have a lot of foundational thinking yet. He hadn't been through what would have been called confirmation and stuff. And in that he hears God's voice shoot supernaturally out of the heavens and talk to him and tell him this. In the morning, I want you to run down, and you'll find a boat ready to go back to your hometown. But this is not the end of your journey. So he, he gets up the next day before the crack of dawn, and he runs down, and he finds a boat, and there's these, these captains right where this vision told him it would be, and they're willing to take him home. And he goes home, and he lives with his parents for a few years until he finally tells his parents, I keep having these visions, these dreams, these words from the Lord, these supernatural interactions that tell me one thing. I'm to be a pastor, and I'm actually supposed to go back to those people that enslaved me, and I'm supposed to love on them, and I'm supposed to bring them the gospel. That's not what we know about St. Patrick. It's the day we wear green. We tell people good luck. We think all Scottish people like me are Irish, and we tell them, you know, blessings. Blessings. We talk about St. Patrick, the guy that, that calls us all for some reason to celebrate it with parades and people hanging out in Irish pubs. But the St. Patrick that is for sure the St. Patrick we know was somebody who lived his life in surrender in such a way that God was constantly in contact with him. And in fact, what he's known for in Ireland, it's not the holiday that we celebrate here, but he's known as the guy who brought healing. He's the guy who brought reconciliation. He's the guy who spoke in tongues. He's the guy who was the mouthpiece of God. This morning we continue our series on form and function. We are going to be looking at how we as the church are to live with this connectedness to God. Form is the posture of, or the shape of something. And, and function explains the way that something works. And throughout the biblical story, God has always given his people certain form and function to the way that things are supposed to work. Certain foundations. This is true of, of what uh, he calls the church, the community of the called out. But it's also true as you look at the Old Testament, you look at the way worship was done in the synagogue, in the temple, right in the, in the tabernacle. And even before that, there's always these certain rhythms that God has given his people. These certain forms and these certain functions to the way that the church is supposed to exist and to worship. God gives the foundations of how to do worship and how to gather to his people time and time again in a way that works in their context. The church has a certain freedom then to the way that we do that, right? So, so God demands there are certain functions and forms that we need to do around worship, around community or gathering, around mission, but he gives us some leeway to what that looks like. We build on the foundations. We have some vertical ability, but there are foundations that we are to build on. Certain prescribed functions that cannot change, that cannot bend, and cannot be... Built differently. God calls us to worship, but neither hymns nor praise songs are biblical or God-given foundations. God calls us to gather as the church, but it is not biblical to have a building or to programs or to worship services. These are not God-given foundations. God calls us to have leadership, to have some type of pastoral leadership and some type of of, uh, youth, I mean, some type of uh, overseeing, but he doesn't call us to have lead pastors and youth pastors and worship pastors and community pastors and assimilation pastors and God, given other things that we like to argue. God calls us to be the church. He doesn't call us to be Mennonite. He doesn't call us to be Quaker. He doesn't call us to be uh, Baptist. God calls us to be the church. I believe sometimes that we live and die trying to defend the things in the church that aren't actually the things God has put into play. In fact, I think the things that we care so much for, God cares so little for. In fact, I think sometimes he probably says, I don't really care about that thing you guys have yourself in a hissy about. Those prescribed aspects of form, the shape of the church, and the function, the way the church works, are what we have been looking at as we have studied this series on form and function. It's been said by, by some people that form and function are the basic tenets of all design, that in every design you always need form and function. If it's your favorite tractor, if it's right, the, the form part is what color is best, Green, right? No, I'm just it. Red, okay. See, I don't know anything about tractors. Right? And function, the way it works. I also like to say that form and function is the marriage between beauty and peace. Form and function is the marriage between beauty and peace. There is a sense of form and function at every people group, in every tribe of people, and in every community. Form and function are the gears that keep people together. It's the glue. It is what allows us to know who we are. It's what defines our traditions. It's what defines our, our history, our language, our way of celebrating. The church as a community of people learning to live and love like Jesus has its ability to influence how they form and function. We've been saying that our six week morning series is a series on unpacking the insight and the instruction on the form and the function of a healthy church ethos. Now let me just explain that word ethos, because I love that word. I believe what an ethos is for us to understand is is this it it is the culture, the characteristic, the spirit of a community. think when God wants us to have a healthy ethos, he doesn't necessarily want us to be able to say how good our worship is, how big our building is, how rich our traditions are, but I rather believe that a healthy form and function, a healthy ethos of our culture, will enact the prescribed foundations of the church, the DNA that God has given us, to create a, now listen to this, a healthy Growing and multiplying church ethos. A healthy, a growing and, and multiplying church ethos. It has been said the church is not a museum of faith, but rather it is a hospital for those needing. So, for that reason, as I said, our series that you guys have been looking at in my absence for the past two weeks is this. It's our six week Sunday morning series on packing the insight and the instruction on the form and the function of the church ethos from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. I hope. For me, as I look at this series, one of the things that comes out is this ability to understand that what God has prescribed in the church in Corinth is really the DNA on what I like to call everybody gets to play, or we as Mennonites like to call what? The priesthood of all believers. This idea that we all have a role to play in the form and the function of the church. And we find that in Corinthians, and I hope that's one of the biggest things we take away. Last year when I was beginning to plan out the series a year in advance, I really began to chew on what series do we want to explore. And, 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 and as, as I got into there, uh, I believed I heard an encouragement from the Lord really to begin to talk about what does it mean to have a healthy church ethos. What does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it mean to, to know the form and the function of the church? And a, a few weeks after that, I was meeting with uh, the mentor of Tom Raynor, and, and he said, Uh, You know, the number one thing pastors need to do in aging churches that are learning to transition is preach on a healthy church ethos. He said, give the theology, what was his exact words? Lay down the theology of the church's biblical purpose and shape. then from there, time and time again, it just felt like confirmation. And as I worked on this series, I really found myself singing the song we'll end with, the song you've been ending with the past two weeks, this song called Church, Rise Up. It's a song that I love. I love the line. It says, shake the dust from our vision. Raise a standard, lead us on. And then later it confesses, by your spirit, let these dry bones live again. Let them live again. And I think that, I hope that's what happens as we look at what we should be, that prophetically it rubs off on us, that it diatribles, it rubs off on us in a way that causes us to, to shake off the dust and renew ourselves not for what we want out of church, but what God wants for the church. Over the past two weeks, I was down in Exponential. It was a blessing to be at that conference. I mean the past week, Sorry. It was great to have our family be able to attend with the conference with me and, and in my absence, Katrina Shank being to talk about what it means to have a church that collaborates together and Derek Landis did a great job on speaking what it means to have a healthy practice of communion together this morning we are going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 and what it means to have a sense of the Spirit's manifestation with us? That thing that St. Patrick became renowned for, what does it mean to have that sort of connection with the Holy Spirit? This morning as we get into that, I think that God desires the form and the function of the church to be wrapped up with the Holy Spirit. And, And I love the way that Paul puts all this in order because first the Lord needs to learn, the church needs to learn how to have communion together to kind of really understand who we're worshiping, and from that, how to interact with that God that we are worshiping. Now think about this for a minute before we read this. In the Old Testament, where was God found? Where was he found? Where did we find him? Found in the temple, right? He was found in synagogue, he was found on the mercy seat, his presence was, was literally in buildings. God shows up in the New Testament, He tears the veil on that. He changes it to be that His presence is now with the church. Who is the church? Right? Everyone is the church. I'm the church. You're the church. She's the church. He's the church. Right? We all have now seen that God's presence has moved from building to people that we are physical representations of his presence to others and so if you will when we have failed to commune with God or believe that God is still tied into a building we've actually stepped away from the form and the function of the church and when we backbite a brother or a sister we are in essence taking a sledgehammer to the temple of God if the temple of God that holds his presence is in the church now it's in our people when we do not play well together, we are actually sledgehammering the temple. This morning we'll see that when the presence of God shows up, and what it looks like, and when it manifests, and what its purpose is, and why it's important, and it really becomes this thing that ensures that we all get to play. So I invite you to turn with me to First Corinthians 12. We're going to look at 1 through 11 really quickly here. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth is a mess right now, like... They just, they have no sense of identity, right? After the church of Acts, we have 120 people that are following Jesus at the time that that he leaves. At the day of Pentecost, how many get added? 3,000. So now all of a sudden, the church is 3,120 people. Try to uphold some traditions through that. It doesn't happen when one day 3,000 people walk in and take over. A couple months later, numbers are up to 5,000. It's been estimated by Rodney Stark and others that by the end of the, the, the early Jerusalem church, the time that Paul had been writing, the church was already over 25,000 people. Within a few short years, the church became went from 120 people to over 25,000. So the church in Corinth, this church made up of, of a bunch of people, pagan believers who don't know any religious background but they've encountered jesus and these jewish people who have lots of traditions but no real sense of jesus's presence uh, come together and try to form community together trust me their fights were way bigger than us talking about chairs and pews or whatever else we're going to talk about that's some crazy life and so the church in corinth is trying to make sense and paul's looking at this going oh my gosh like these guys are about to go wayward. I need them to understand the form and the function of the church. That starts with communion. And then it goes to the fact that the presence of God needs to be with them. And that's the DNA around the passage that we are going to read today. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Or if you're, some versions say, I don't want you to be ignorant. Which is funny, because this word in the original text probably translates better as ignorant. And ignorant does not mean dumb. It means to know the truth and ignore it. It means to know the truth and ignore it. You know that when you were pagans, now who's he writing through? The church in Corinth, they are both pagans and... Oh man, he just put them all in one boat. Hey, when you guys were all pagans... (laughs) So, guys, you at one time were pagan before Jesus, right? Somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Now, for the traditionalists, the Jews, this is pretty offensive stuff right here, right? You're saying I followed a mute God. Therefore, I want you to know that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God can say, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord. No one can proclaim that except by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, first of all, let's just say this. What, I don't want there to be anyone confused when we're talking about the word gifts here. This uh, word here is not anything humanistic in, in understanding it at all. The word, uh, when you look at it, really implies that this is something that is owned by the Holy Spirit. It is an instrument that God uses to relate to human nature. It is a term that is non-carnal. It is is truly this supernatural gift. And, And like I said, I love the word uninformed here because he does not want them to be dumb. He doesn't want them to know the truth and to ignore it. He does not want them to be unprepared because at the end of the day, the church isn't about giving good messages. It's about giving right discipleship. And Paul wants there to be no confusion around. then Paul lets down the hammer when you're pagans when you weren't holy when you weren't following Jesus Paul wants them to remember that so that they don't live any longer as pagans and what is that thing that separates them that the God we serve is not he's not mute you guys are a little mute today right God is not mute, though we may live contently sometimes as Christians, that we have his word, that's how he speaks to us. Hey, they had Jewish scriptures. They had some of the early letters. Paul's saying, no, guys, you don't have a mute God. He speaks. Let's continue. There are different kinds of gifts, of course, but the same spirit distributes them. There's different kinds of service. But the same Lord, there are different kinds of working. But in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one of the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given the Spirit and the message of wisdom. Now what we see here instantly is that the Holy Spirit is giving the gifts. It is his job to give it. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit to give job to give different gifts. The intent of those gifts is to declare, as we saw earlier, Jesus is Lord, right? The whole fruit of the Spirit is to be able to declare to each other, to the powers of the day, to other people, to pagans, that Jesus is Lord. And, and that's really the whole test of the manifestations, right? Like, if God shows up, The test of it is, is it proclaiming Jesus or not? So then Paul goes on and he divides them into three categories. Number one, there's the different kinds of gifts. Then number two, there's different kinds of service. There's different kinds of working. Now, Paul doesn't want there to be any confusion, even though there's three categories in which the Holy Spirit dividends up into people, all of them are to do what? Be for the common good of the church, right? And and all of them are given by the same God or Holy Spirit. They're, they all are given for the same purpose. Everybody is equal. Everybody gets something. And one of my favorite things here is if you would understand the imagery of what he says when the Holy Spirit gives him, it has been said that it has an action word to it, that that it's almost a dancing hand. So if you will, as you read this passage, picture with me that the Holy Spirit is a a physical representation of the hand of God dancing on people and giving them something that is needed at that time. Now, I think that we don't have time to look at this this morning, but there is great understanding needed in what different kinds of gifts are, different kinds of service, and different kind of workings. I think some of that plays into apest in Ephesians 4, when you look at apostles, prophet, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Then you have gifts of service, and then you have these, these gifts that he's talking about. And that's really what he's talking about. This first one right here, there are different kinds of gifts. And, and that there, he's talking about the manifestations, and that is not owned by anyone. That dances around, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. So to one, we see the Spirit gives a message of wisdom. And to another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing, or maybe your version says discerning between spirits, to speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, this is the part that makes us uncomfortable as Christians. Anybody think those things don't come with a little bit of messiness? So when we find something to be messy, Ray, I don't know about you, but if someone's coming into my house and it's a mess, where does the laundry go? Closet, right? I mean, one of my favorite movies as a kid was Harry and the Hendersons and and they they bring this sasquatch in their house and they're scared of him seeing all of the dead deer that they have shot and so they just clog all of the messy things into their closet and one day he opens a closet and and all of these deer heads fall out and he's like what like and so we look at this stuff and we get scared of it because we can't explain it it doesn't fit our neatness so we open a closet lock it up. And we pretend it doesn't exist. And then what happens when it does start to happen is there's no home for those people. Several times if you study Mennonite history, we've lost people who were focused on justice and the Holy Spirit because they did not find there anything for them to engage. It was always in the closet. Now at the end of the day, we say we believe in these things. We know he does that let me tell you a little bit about my experiences when i was outside of the church i began to really experience the holy spirit in ways that i was told he doesn't do that anymore and i and i think that in my life now i have seen all of these things in action in great ways in fact I have experienced them. And it's important for you to understand that this list falls under Paul's list that says there are different gifts given. That dancing hand. So to one, right now you may have the gift of healing, because it's needed in that context. But next week you might have a different one. You do not own these gifts. Unlike past Ephesians 4, where some people are more apostle in nature or some are more prophetic in nature— these gifts are not core to your identity. They are core to the context, for the common good of the context. It's what's needed at the time. Now, we, we love the gift of wisdom, right? I mean, that's—who we, we, doesn't like that gift? That's—well, that person always knows how to lead. I always find it funny that, that large churches, megachurches, don't hire people that have pastored. They hire people who have what? Run businesses. Why? Because if you run your own business, you have the gift, hopefully, of, of administration or wisdom, right? Like, you're, you, you're wise. You know how to grow things. We like that gift. That one we're not scared of. In fact, as my grandmother was aging in her life, I remember her constantly saying things like, Oh, my doctor, he's such a wise guy. Or, and that was not meant sarcastically, right? Or, uh, uh, he's so conscientious. Right? We love the gift of wisdom. Now, what's interesting here is the gift of knowledge. We can get caught up in that and say, whoa, well, well, we love people who are smart, but that is not. Who are these gifts assigned to? Holy Spirit. They are given by the Holy Spirit. There is nothing carnal about them. And the same thing with the word knowledge here. It could be translated as supernatural insight. Supernatural insights. So, for instance, I think I've shared this story before. I remember one time uh my friend and I were downtown, and there was a lady limping right kind of like this, trying to make her way down the city. but we just asked her if we could pray for her hey, can, we, can we just pray for you So a couple of us just gathered around and we started to pray over her just lord we we want healing, right I mean. This poor lady's lived her whole life she's you know unable to walk she's unable to drive and and why we were pursuing the gift of healing the one that showed up was the gift of knowledge so there was a lady with us and she said to her um you know as i pray for you unforgiveness is the word that constantly comes in my mind unforgiveness unforgiveness and she said sometimes i think that unforgiveness can manifest in our lives that see The Holy Spirit isn't the only thing that manifests in our lives, but it is what competes with the other things that do manifest in our lives. And and she said, in fact, I really think that you need to let go of some anger with your father. lady broke down crying. Began to be moved emotionally. Told some terrible stories of what her father did to her. And as she released it, she was able to walk away with little to no limb. Little to no limb. This is what Paul's speaking about here. Our God is not mute. He gives the gift of wisdom, but he also gives the gift of knowledge. So you know what to say to somebody. You know how to unlock somebody. Because you know what happens when someone like that experiences that? It's the same thing that happens when the witch doctor becomes a follower of Jesus. They walk away and say, Jesus is Lord. It's contagious. The gift of faith, right? This idea that, you know, there's some people that just never seem to doubt. How many of you are that person? I deeply love you guys because I, my nature is not the gift of faith. That's the people that believe without anything. I mean, they, you could, like, take their eyes out and they'd still know how to walk down the street. I'm living by faith. It doesn't matter, right? Like, I mean, it, I, those people irk me so much because my, my personality is full of doubt and full of insecurity right? Then we have the gift of healing. We anoint people in the Mennonite Church because we believe in this, right? We, we bring them forward, we surrender them to God, and then we say this, we pray for the wisdom of the doctors. That's not a bad prayer, but it's not what Paul's talking about here. Rather, what Paul's talking about here is like one time my friend uh, and and we were sitting and he was struggling with depression. He he had his medicine changed four or five times and, and he couldn't find himself finding sanity. And we gathered around him and prayed. And as we prayed for him, and I don't know if this was a permanent relief or temporary relief, but as we were praying for him, Man, we could feel electricity in our hands. Our hands began to shake like this, and we were just praying over him. And in that space, he too broke down crying and was moved to worship and declared, Jesus is Lord. Miraculous powers. We find these in the prophets of old, but they still happen today. People that say, Pay attention to this or that, and when that happens, this thing will be signified. Or prophecy, the word here, prophetess here, the, 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 the Greek word that means to be able to do insight. Now there's a difference here between prophecy and prophetic gifting, what we find in Ephesians 4. That word there speaks much more to forth So for me to go up to somebody that is the, doing an injustice and say, stop, that is acting in the prophetic. That is Ephesians 4 prophetic. That's being able to speak forthright or forthtelling. But then there's also the gift of foretelling. Right? I mean, study the book of Daniel. He knew about the, the empires falling way before they ever did. Foretelling is this ability to walk with the presence of God in a way that we can declare things because we have been with them. For instance, one time, I, I remember we were in a worship gathering, and, and we had a lady that was in our midst that had been part of the occult. And she was just there to really antagonize the church. She had been there to set herself up against us. She had not been there to really be part of what we were doing. And 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 we didn't know that. We knew she had a, a troubled past. And I remember we were just worshiping one time. And in my eyes, I saw... This, this image, and I can't remember exactly what it was. I mean, this was 12 years ago already. But, but I got up and I said prophetically, whatever this is, this image, is what's holding us back right now. And, I, and, and in the spirit I saw, uh, it's usually in images with prophecy, right? This large crow, and it sits on a tree. And I heard that the church is that tree. And when the tree, when that bird landed on the tree, the tree was pushed down. The branches bent and were unable to grow does that image mean anything, this, this star with the planets around it? Once once you know, that woman stood up and said, that's the thing I have tattooed to my ankle. And she pulled it up like this. Prophecy is the ability to see in the Spirit. Then we have discernment of spirits. That's the people that have the ability to, to name what is the Holy Spirit and what is not. Because, folks, if there's a Holy Spirit, there's also a? Oh, Holy Spirit, right? Like, there's also spirits in us. And I know time is ticking already. We have tongues. We have the ability to dis- own in tongues. All these things work. That is not working today. All these things are the work of one in the same spirit. And he distributes each one as he dis- needs to, as he designates. He's the dancing hand of God. Now on the back side of your bulletin, real quick, we're going to work through four notes that I want us to take away from this passage. So I encourage you just to flip them over. One, folks, God is not mute, though we live contently as if he is. God is not mute. Stop speaking louder than him. Let him speak for himself. Let's not forget that. Secondly, everybody should be continually informed about the way that God speaks. Despite the fact that it's messy, stop locking it in the closet, unpack it, let it out. Admit it's messy, keep looking at it. This is kind of passages we should keep before us, right? Because we need to understand the form and the function that Paul gives the church. This is something he wants them to excel at. Guys, church is messy right now. i got to relay the foundations. One of those foundations is this. Third, though it may be uncomfortable, we should welcome any manifestation that declares Jesus is Lord. We should welcome anything that says Jesus is Lord. It's what grows churches. What caused the church to go from 120 to 3,000? Manifestations. What happened? The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up, people singing in tongues, and it doubles, triples. No, I don't even know how many times that is, right? Like, that's a lot, Now, could you imagine if we understood that our God's not mute, we lived into that reality? I believe the same thing could be for us. And I don't mean to offer it up as a church growth strategy. It's not what it is. But man, I want to know what's on God's heart. And I think that there will be less doubt on who God is if we could figure this stuff out. And God gives the gifts for the common good of the church as he chooses and eagerly desires everybody to play. 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to look at that in a few weeks. But at the end of it, Paul writes this. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Especially prophecy. I love Paul's words here because he just, Paul just likes to put that little extra turn in, right? The word eagerly there means pursue, intentionally. Go after, don't give up, push on. And I want you to pursue those. And if any of them, I really want you to pursue Prophecy, And as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, you know, tongues are good and stuff. But, but you know, if outsiders come in and see that, they're going to go, what is this? But when they hear God speak through prophecy or when you prophetically speak to somebody, they will know God is true. As the worship team comes forward, I don't have time to do an apologetic breakdown. But so often we get into this belief in the church that these things don't happen anymore. We say, well, in, in, in the next chapter, Paul tells us that, you know, someday tongues will cease and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but you know what the next chapter is after that? Instructions on how to operate in them. <laughs> he doesn't give the ending and then more. These things aren't the fullness of Christ, as we'll see next week. But they are things that are, we are to pursue so that we can know the heart of God. We won't have to fight about what the heart of God is because we will literally hear The heart of God, and people will want to be here to hear the heart of God. I invite you to stand as we close.